This week's podcast is brought to you by the State of Online STEM Education in the U.S., an upcoming national survey from the Online Learning Consortium and the Every Learner Everywhere Network. The survey will explore the online STEM landscape through the lenses of faculty, institutional leadership, researchers, and policymakers. Please sign up and take the survey at studyinput.com. That's studyinput.com. Hello and welcome to the EdSurge Podcast, a weekly look at how education is changing. I'm Jeff Young. How can teachers check any racial bias they might have at the door and keep it out of classrooms to make sure every student feels equally valued? That's a question that more and more educators are asking these days. It's part of a growing awareness that teachers need to be more intentional in how they design their activities in the classroom and how they talk and act to make sure they reach all students, even ones who don't look like them or who come from very different backgrounds. So, okay, so what exactly can teachers do? How does this equity teaching work? That's the big question of today's episode. And to try to answer it, we're talking to the host of a new podcast about teaching. It's kind of meta. (laughs) This one comes out of MIT. The podcast is called Teach Lab, and its first season is devoted to this theme of inclusive teaching. The host of that new podcast is Justin Reich, and he's our guest today. Reich is an assistant professor at MIT, and he directs the Teaching Systems Lab there. I've actually known him for a few years, and and he and I paths have crossed um, when he was a a columnist for Edweek and when he's done some other things. So um, I'm really excited to have him on the show today. Reich stressed that he sees his job on his podcast not as some expert on equity in teaching, but he said he's there to listen to people who've been doing this so much longer than him and and give them a megaphone to share their ideas. So in and in this podcast season he's done on equity teaching, it's which is wrapping up, he talked to some big names in the field, including Jose Luis Filson, executive director of EduColor, which a lot of you probably know, it's an organization dedicated to race and social justice in in education. He spoke to Beverly Daniel Tatum, who, um, a psychologist and educator, also well-known, who wrote the best-selling book, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria and Other Conversations About Race? And he had on Jeffrey Canada, founder and leader of the Harlem Children's Zone in New York, which, of course, pioneered that approach of providing a comprehensive system of services, uh, hoping to break the cycle of generational poverty. I started by asking Reich how he got interested in this topic of equity in teaching. Yeah, so this work started for us um, because Google gave us some funding uh, in our lab to look at uh, unconscious bias in uh, in computer science teacher education. Um, we had been doing work developing these digital clinical simulations. Um, and we said, oh, sure, we'd love to do some things related to what they describe as unconscious bias. And then once we got the funding, we did some research on unconscious bias. And we said, oh, man, this is not a really great uh, anchor for educators to use um, because while there may be unconscious bias, there's also conscious bias. Like unconscious bias proposes that people are more racist than they intend to be, but people are also exactly as racist as they intend to be, and it's sort of hard to tell the difference. Um, Ouch. The the, yeah, the other sure. the other issue is that uh, um, the other issue is that when things are unconscious, we don't have access to them. It's very hard to change our unconscious behaviors. So you know, a, a stream of work that's targeting the unconscious may not necessarily be as productive as things that you know target our conscious thoughts, feelings, and and biases and beliefs and things like that. Um, 
So we sort of shifted our focus away from unconscious bias towards this idea of equity teaching, and we were kind of exploring what work already existed amongst computer science educators that were interested in broadening participation, that were interested in equity. And we found that there was a lot of great research that was happening around policy, like how do you get more kids um, of different kinds of backgrounds, of historically marginalized backgrounds, into um, computer science classes. There was a lot of cool work on curriculum. Uh, there was a lot of cool work on lesson planning. There was less that existed um, that answered the question, all right, but like, what do you do in the classroom what, you know, when you get down um, to what we call the last mile of equity, the sort of improvisational interactions day to day that happen thousands of times in every classroom between teachers and students? What guidance, what advice, what counsel do we give around that level? And that seemed sort of missing to us. Um, I mean, there's lots of amazing work that's in that space, but we felt like that was a space that we might be able to be helpful. Um, so we did some research along that in computer science teacher education. You know, what does equity teaching practice look like there? Um, and that inspired us to do more work around equity teaching practices. So that's what we anchored the first season of the podcast around. Let's try to get a whole diverse group of people. Let's get some research. Let's get some amazing teachers we know. Let's get some community activists. Let's get some school leaders um, and bring them all in and ask them about their expertise, but really try to zero in on the question. Um, what does it look like inside classrooms when teachers are doing work that makes all students feel welcome and helps historically disadvantaged students to academically thrive? That's that's the driving question that we're trying to answer in 10 episodes. I'm also curious about as your your personal journey interviewing so many people for this season, what were some of the surprises for you? Maybe what was the biggest surprise um, that, that you encountered from the interviews? Overwhelmingly, the biggest surprise was how hard it is to answer the question, what does great equity teaching look like day-to-day, moment-to-moment at a classroom level? Um, there were very few of our guests who could intuitively rattle off answers to that question that were actionable for sort of any kind of listener. Um, part of the reason for that, um, I think one reason for that is that we think about a lot of these things at the level of lesson planning curriculum, um, at sort of higher levels of education design, and less so at the really granular level, the last mile of equity day-to-day -day interactions. Um, and then second, a lot of really great practice is situated in a particular place. Um, so it's hard to say things that work everywhere. Um, we had a great story um, from Colin Rose, who's the assistant superintendent for Opportunity Gaps in Boston, um, who talks about a couple of teachers trying to trying to do a great job of reaching out to kids and helping kids feel seen in the classroom by celebrating Cinco de Mayo. Um, but the issue is in Boston, um, uh, very few of our Latin American kids are from Mexico. They're from the Dominican Republic. They're from Puerto Rico. They're from Cape Verde. They don't celebrate Cinco de Mayo. Um, and, and so it was this kind of mismatch between what teachers were trying to do and, you know, their deep understanding of community needs. But I did find that with every one of our guests, um, you know, some some more readily, some uh, taking some more time to dig in, um, they could talk in really concrete ways about 
Um, no, this is exactly what I do that I think really matters. You know, so um, Colin Rose, again, was a math teacher for 10 years in the city of Boston. And, and he would say something at sort of a, at a higher level, which would be like, it's really important to get to know your kids. It's really important to have your instruction be anchored around their individual identities and life stories. And then we would say, OK, Colin, how exactly do you do that? When I walk into your classroom, what would I see doing that? And you say, well, you know, in the first week of my algebra class, we don't do math. Um, we just talk about each other. Um, and, if, and, we and we talk, you know, more about our relationship with math, um, which for many of the kids in the Boston public school systems can be, you know, and, and, for, and for black Latin American kids across the country can be a traumatic history with math. Um, and he talked about an exercise where he does where he has um, kids take a paper bag and they draw on the outside of the paper bag people's things that people see about them and then little pieces of paper that things that sort of only they would know about themselves and puts them in the bag. Um, and then, you know, that just communicates a whole bunch of things about how much Colin values his students as individuals, about his commitment to try to make the curriculum and the life in that class connected to their identities and their interests as individuals. And then those bags open up a series of conversations that unfold, particularly in the first few weeks of class, but also throughout the whole year, you know, where Colin can say things like, uh, you know, so what are you, what are you really passionate about? You're really passionate about basketball. Well, the first time did you step on the free throw line? Were you shooting 80% or were you shooting 20%? Well, you're shooting 20%. How did you get good? You practice. Well, let me tell you what we're going to do here in math class. It, it's the same thing that you're already good at. It's just in a different context. Um, so it's those kinds of specifics. Like here's exactly how Colin does that over the course of a week in a particular algebra one classroom um, that I think are, you know, the, those, are, those are the gems and nuggets that I'm sort of most proud of the of the podcast surfacing for people like really concretely um you know i think i think in the jose vilson um uh, episode we end up uh, debugging you know a couple of things one is like very specific kinds of questions this sort of ladder of questions that go from observation to pattern recognition to claims about mathematics that like kids with different levels of mathematical proficiency can get into um, to kind of dial up the math. Um, you know, Jose also talks really specifically about how important it is to use the entire community in the building as resources for successful teaching. Um, you know, not just the principal and your colleagues, um, but the folks who help serve lunches and the custodial staff and the crossing guard and everybody in the building playing a role in building great communities for kids. So it's those concrete things that we're excited about. You also had uh, Jeffrey Canada, the founder of the Harlem's Children's Zone, who I'm sure is well known to our listeners. Um, and what struck me particularly, and if, if I see you guys are creative comments, so I'm going to use the clip. Please. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so can all of your listeners, Jeff. Take, take what we've produced and share it. And that's what it's there for. Perfect. So there's a clip that he... Um, uh, that Jeffrey Canada mentions that he says teaching is kind of the one of the most complicated um, professions in the world. Well, first of all, I'll, I'll let the clip play. Teaching, when, when you're teaching for a living, it's one of the most complicated and difficult jobs that you can do. I mean, there are these sort of unknowns. There's not a teacher who walks in that classroom in the morning who knows what they're going to face, right? Because you've got a bunch of kids who've had a bunch of different experiences, some good, some bad, some that's going to be helpful, some that's going to be unhelpful. And that's every single day you go to work. Uh, and what we have done is essentially uh, train teachers to a minimum threshold 
put them in those classrooms and say, you know, we'll see you uh, in two months. We'll do an in-service training. Hope everything goes well. And no other profession. You know, uh, you wouldn't do this in law. You would never get your first-year law student and give them the toughest case and say, yeah, go to court, figure it out, do the best you can do, you know, and then come see me afterwards. You would never ever go and be a medical doctor and just like, yeah, I know you don't know it all, but just go in there and try and figure it out. In education, that's what we've done, and we've done it poorly. So you think, I guess, is this part of why it's so complicated? Because there is this sense of like, you know, teaching is something that, especially in higher ed, I know there's a lot of debate over whether there's enough training going on for people. I think there's probably even some people that might even suggest you can just kind of do it based on if you've had good teaching. But what do you, you know? What is it that makes teaching so complicated? The amazing thing about teaching is how much simultaneous thinking a teacher needs to do, and how many decisions they need to be constantly making. Um, you know, when I'm teaching, at a minimum. I'm thinking about the substantive domain that I'm teaching about. Um, so I'm going to teach the history of adaptive tutors in class one day. And that, you know, I'm sort of just thinking about the facts around that. Um, I'm thinking about the design of my lesson, what I have planned to be able to have people engage with that history. I'm thinking about the clock and where we are in the process and, and what I've already done and what I have to do later. And then I'm kind of looking at each of my students and seeing how they're reacting and how they're responding, what opportunities. Opportunities I have to connect them with things I think they'll be interested in, who I feel like is checked out um, or making some bad decisions or whatever it is. Um, I'm doing all of that at the same time and constantly thinking about like, oh, is now should I stop and wrap this up? Or, um, you know, is that a hand that I want to call on? Like we've we've been talking about this for a couple minutes. People seem pretty excited to keep talking about it. Do I let it keep going? Do I move on? I mean, there's just all of these decisions, um, the feedback from these decisions sometimes is incredibly immediate and sometimes it's really delayed. Um, oops, I was pretty sure that my students understood that concept and decided not to spend more time with it. And now I'm reading their papers or grading their whatever's later on. And I realized, nope, we <laughs> like that was definitely a mistake that I made back there. Um, and then it's just, you know, incredibly relational. Um, I don't know, my first department head told me, I was a, a high school history teacher. He said, look, every time you assign an essay, you're going to be assigning 90 essays. Um, well, the, the, the assignment you're giving is really a different experience for every single kid that you're teaching. Um, so that, I think, is part of all the complexity. You know, and a crazy thing about teaching relative to other professions is that, you know, you can you can not know a whole lot about teaching and go in and sort of do it. And like no one obviously, you know, dies or fails or rages against you or those kinds of things you know you can get along in a mediocre way but doing it really really well I mean the people who do it really really well it's such a beautiful compelling thing to behold um, we're getting ready this week to release an episode with Nima Avashia who's a um, middle school civics teacher uh, at the McCormick Middle School in Boston 15 years and just a master master of her craft um, and and she is the kind of person who when you talk to about the details of teaching and about sort of how exactly you get better, she can just say, you know, here's what I've been doing for 12 years. Here are the new things I started doing three years ago. Here's how it's making a difference for my students. Um, it's, uh, it's powerful to behold. And then on top of this, of course, we're adding these issues around equity and making sure everyone feels at home on top of all the things that you've added about, you know, that you've mentioned, right? I mean, that's, 
that's like another layer for for teachers to that that they should should pay attention to. There's just infinite layers. You could you can think about you know all of us are differently able. All of us um, have uh, you know we don't have learning styles, but we have cognitive strengths and weaknesses. We have areas of deep expertise and areas um, with where with less expertise and fewer connections. Um, our individuals' identities are implicated in what we learn in all kinds of ways. There, there's you know just you keep peeling back the layers of people and their understanding. I mean, this is in part why I love teaching so much. I do with, with my undergraduates at MIT. Um, we sometimes do an exercise where we'll have a debate on things like, should students in Massachusetts be allowed to independently take a course of study in mathematics through Khan Academy um, and receive course credit for that? Um, and put people pro and con. And by the time, by like by the end of an hour debate, we've talked about like, you know, national broadband policy and the accessibility of libraries and public transportation in rural Western Massachusetts. And we've talked about teacher training, cognitive psychology and the meaning of grades, uh, you know, and the college pipeline, just all of these different topics that get evoked. Um, education is one of these fields, you know, it feels like if you, if you grab on any strand of it, like pretty quickly, you realize you're pulling on a spider web that's sort of connected to all these other things. After the break, what happens when teachers who are, are taking classes on equity come to the uncomfortable realization that their attitudes are not as inclusive as they thought? Stay with us. This week's episode is brought to you by Every Learner Everywhere in partnership with the Online Learning Consortium. They're running a survey of the online STEM landscape. I asked the survey's leader, Devin Kinsilla, what cultural factors are holding back adoption of online STEM education? It's a very safe thing to do to kind of continue with these labs that have been taught, you know, for generations, quite honestly. I mean, we had evidence that some of the labs that, that we see in undergraduate labs are can direct, the lineage goes right back to the 1890s. And you can kind of follow, I mean, you know, things change a little bit, modernize a little bit, different equipment, but the origin is actually in the 1890s, which is good and bad. But there's also a number of other things. You know, one is is that it's gonna. I think it's gonna come out very clearly. People haven't come to grips with what a hands-on experience in a lab is. When you first ask faculty why are they doing labs, probably the first or second thing they say is because they need a hands-on experience with the tools of science. And you know, so they're not quite sure how that happens in an online environment. Even if you have a wonderful simulation, or if you have you're actually using real instrumentation with robotic arms, and it's it, but the experiment is 100 miles away. So it's that kind of concept, cultural concept, that they need a hands-on experience in their lab, in their you know, kind of going through school that does that. You can sign up and take the survey at studyinput.com. That's studyinput.com. Now back to the episode. There was uh, um, another episode that you all did that talked about the use of simulation in teaching teachers and running through scenarios with actors, actually, um, to help people in a safe space deal with things around, you know, accusation of racism or actually maybe, um, you know, expressions of racism by the teacher may be done unintentionally. Um, it really struck me that episode because it seems like that it was an example of one where the people uh, to learn that learning is hard that in, like can be actually like kind of identity shakingly hard if you think you're one kind of person and then through your a classroom experience you might like be questioning your own um, bias. 
Yeah. So, 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 um, what is it? Peter Senge says that people are always hoping that leadership can be a neck up activity, um, that it can be all head and no heart. Um, and lots of things that we do that seem like technical subjects are not like that. Um, and you know, any kind of teaching is like that as well. Um, and I think my, you know, my hunch is that most people, if they think back over their educational history, they can think of a moment where, where new knowledge or an encounter with new ideas shook them in a really wonderful way. Um, and I bet lots of people can also, you know, and unfortunately people of color, queer folks, indigenous people um, can probably also tell a lot of experiences where their encounters with the educational systems were profoundly harmful, were, were, were traumatizing, were reinforcing um, the worst uh, biases and prejudices and structural inequalities in society. Um, and uh, yeah, so that, you know, and I think simulation is a great way to encounter that work. A particularly good reason um, to have teachers practice through simulation is I think there's good evidence um, that if you get people talking about topics in abstract ways, they will say some things. But if you get them and put them in realistic scenarios and watch how they act, they will not always act in ways that are aligned with what they say. Um, and uh, um, and that is, you know, there's a guy named Ben Dodger who calls that conditionally inclusive ideology, um, that they will describe a commitment to inclusive behaviors that in simulated settings where there's really not that much on the line, um, they won't necessarily act in ways that are aligned um, with those things. So the, so the episode that we have is actually with a colleague, Liz Self, who's down at Vanderbilt, um, who's just doing incredibly work with incredible work with the. Uh, simulations to help people think about anti-racist, anti-oppressive practices in teaching. And she's super inspirational for the work that we do in our lab. I guess, is there a sense that people are looking for more ways to engage? More teachers are trying to to, to really um, kind of dig into this and learn these new practices? Or is there is there a need for more incentives for people to take those kinds of trainings? Because they may think, um, I don't need that. I, I've already, I got it. Yeah, I don't know that there's good research nationally on demand. I think we're definitely seeing uh, uh, growth in professional development around these topics. There are sort of more professional development shops that are opening up around issues of diversity, equity, inclusion. There's lots of people who've been doing this work for a very long time, um, but there are there's lots of new entrants. There's lots of new demand. I think some of it. M- you know, so here are some hypotheses that are that have no basis other than my own thinking. Um, one of them might be, you know, we had this phase of education reform that said, well, if we implement some testing and we implement some national standards, we're going to be able to identify achievement gaps. And then by measuring these achievement gaps, we're going to be able to address them. Um, and there's really very little evidence that that whole, you know, massive national effort uh, yielded all that much in terms of gains. And so a follow up kind of beyond that is something along the lines of, well, you know, you can't just measure these things and, and be like, look, there's <laughs> there are gaps. There's inequality here. You know, now that we've seen them, they'll fix themselves. No, there's work to be done there. Um, and the work to be done is not 
something that like, oh, you know, we forgot to teach kids in poverty impacted neighborhoods. It's that we have, you know, a highly stratified system of education at every level. Um, you know, and it's not just that affluent kids go to some schools and less affluent kids go to other schools. It's that, you know, within schools, we track kids in ways that divide them um, by, the, by their family background and give them different kinds of opportunities and so forth. Um, and so, you know, wherever you are at, at any level in any school, there's sort of, you know, if we, so many educators get into this work because they want to create a future where schools give all kids a fair shot at a great life. Um, and so I, I think this work really cuts to the heart of why a lot of teachers get into the profession. I mean, the, you know, the cruelest, most like, tragic irony of teaching the kind of you know like like greek homeric irony tragedy of teaching is that so many folks get into the business because they want to create more equitable futures but schools themselves are elements of reproducing structural inequality in society so you've got a bunch of idealistic people going in um to make the world a more fair place participating in these institutions um you know which sort and rank and fail kids uh, you know and and lift kids up on the basis of you know, not their ability, not their merit, not their effort, um, but their but their life circumstances that they had no control over. Yeah, it, I, it does make me think. You know, one of our most popular episodes of the year, if I think it was the most popular, was on last year was on teacher burnout, and the interviews really centered around that exact feeling mm. of of not getting, not feeling like they're achieving what teachers came in to achieve. Um. If you have time for one last question, yeah. I'm curious about um, your own teaching because that comes out in your interviews. You've, you, as you've said, you've been a teacher at the K-12 level. You're teaching now courses at MIT, and are a lot of our listeners, um, you know, are, are in one or the other of those situations at the moment. I, I guess, and we're we're always feeling like there's there's a there are plenty of topics that serve both, but I guess how how different when it comes to diversity, equity, inclusion, and teaching, how, what are some of the, is there anything that's useful to think about as far as like the needs of the higher ed teacher versus the K-12 teacher or, uh, you know, or, or are there really generalizations that can be found in, in the episodes you've done and other resources for whatever level of, of, um, you know, age student you're teaching? That's a great question, Jeff. There are, I think there are things that any teacher from any background can be thinking about. Two of the most common themes that came up across all of our episodes were the incredible importance of knowing your students. That's harder to do in a 600-person lecture class, but it's not impossible with office hours, with making time to connect with individual people, with you know, uh, with exit tickets, with other exercises, you know, I think, I think our young people understand the limits that teachers are in and they value whatever steps teachers take towards those things. So, so knowing students really well, thinking about identity is one of them. Think about the question of how will curriculum be relevant to young people's lives? How will it be connected to what you've learned about who they are? Um, how do we make it so that every curriculum people from all kinds of backgrounds can see themselves in that work. Um, knowing that white people, men, typically find ways of seeing themselves in that 
Um, it's really about expanding that. Those seem like they're really accessible in lots of kinds of ways. But there are definitely things that are discipline specific, um, that are that do feel more age specific. So, so there's some things that generalize, and then there are some things that are specific to fields or or other kinds of things. You know, the other thing that I think is really important to generalize is just recognizing that this is lifelong work. Um, that one of the things that's so incredible about being an educator is that there's always more to learn. There's always chances to refine your practice. Um, we have a new online course coming out. It's a free course on edX. It's called Becoming a More Equitable Educator Mindsets and Practices. Um, and this is one of the themes that we hit on a lot. And one of the ways that we that we hit on it um, is I teach a class at MIT called Learning Media and Technology. And a big theme in the course is saying, how do people from different backgrounds and different life circumstances use technology differently? Um, and there's just there's no way to talk about that in the United States context without talking about race and poverty. Um, and I got some feedback in my student evaluations at the end of the course uh, last year, which were something like, um, you know, Professor Reich did a really bad job bringing up issues of race and poverty. He was always saying that black kids and poor kids go into schools that can't be better and technology would ever work. And it was really disheartening. And, and it's important to have these topics in the class, but I just think we need someone with some anti-racist training to teach those sections instead of him. Um, you know, and obviously that just breaks my heart. You know, ooh, I mean, part of it, like actually before it breaks my heart, I just get super defensive. I'm like, hey, I'm teaching this whole class about anti-racism. And, you know, lots of kids do like that section, and you know, that theme in the course and appreciate it. But it was just such a good reminder for me, like, nope, I didn't listen well enough this year. Like there was at least one kid who was sitting in my class um, who I didn't connect with in the right way, who I didn't serve in the right way. And I got to find more ways to listen. I got to find more ways to bring in those, you know, not to not give up on bringing in those topics, but to bring them in in ways that all of my students can connect with and learn from and grow from and realize how incredibly important they are. Um, so I tell that story in the MOOC that we have, uh, the online course, Becoming a More Equitable Educator, coming up um, to remind folks that, you know, even for those of us who for a little bit of time have been trying to to do better and to think harder about this kind of work. You know, it's just, it's a, it's a life, it's a lifelong, it's a career long enterprise, um, to be working on. Um, and sometimes that's hard, I think, for teachers to grapple with. Um, but, it, but, you know, I think in the best possible way, it just means that we've, we've chosen a profession where, where the learning and the possibilities are just infinite. That There's always more to learn and do and, um, ways to be better at our work. Oh, that's really interesting. And I think, you know, I think you, um, this does feel like in listening to your episodes, it does feel like this is not a box you can check. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a really surprising and, and there's just an, an endless number of topics within it. So, um, well, thank you so much for, for sharing today, what you've learned from doing the podcast and from, um, and from, from what you're doing. Thanks so much. Thanks Jeff. Thanks for having me. This has been the Ed Surge podcast. Each week we bring you conversations like this one. So if you like it, please subscribe, do it. Click on the subscribe button wherever you listen, whatever podcast app you love. And make sure you tell a friend or leave a rating. We're really trying to spread the word. And a big reminder, um, next week, we're doing our first live taping of this podcast at the South by Southwest EDU conference in Austin. The topic is Tales from the Algorithmic Frontlines, about how algorithms are impacting students and, and efforts to raise algorithmic literacy in education. If you're at the event, we hope to see you there. That's at Monday at 11 local time in Austin. We're really looking forward to it. This episode you just heard was edited and produced by me, Jeff Young. 
We'll be back next week with more on how education is changing. Thanks for listening.